Rafa, road and off-road racing, Walmart, and the Walton family. What do all these things have in common? Why, the great natural state of Arkansas, of course, which is continuing to gather momentum as a major hub for American and international cycling. And we're going to dig into why that is and talk to some of the players behind that uh, on this show. But first, we have a bit of a detour into a spinal cord injury drug and its uh, arrival in the hair samples of some Tour de France riders. And uh, to talk about this strange case, we are joined today by Sive O'Shea. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing fine. Thanks. So Tizanidine, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but this is a spinal cord injury drug that's a, a muscle relaxant of sorts. This was found in hair samples on a study that was requested by the, the French police. And you broke this story a, a few days ago. Now, so explain it to us like, what this drug is and, and how it was found, if you would, please. Okay, so, well, it's, I mean, like you, I wasn't aware of this drug until last week. Um, it's, a, it's a muscle relaxant. It's kind of used to calm muscle spasms in backs, generally, for people who are suffering from serious injuries or illnesses such as uh, multiple sclerosis and also people with spinal cord injuries. Um, and it basically, it works by kind of blocking um, pain receptors and kind of getting into the, the central nervous system and using that to basically stop muscle spasms and allow kind of other uh, physiotherapy to happen. Um, this whole issue with the Tour de France cyclists came about when um, the police, the French police, because doping is illegal in, in France, um, I must say that at this time, this drug isn't banned by WADA and so therefore doesn't fall under any doping regulations, though the, the French police are interested in this drug because they found several boxes of it at a team hotel. So they brought in these uh, researchers to take some hair samples from seven riders and um, the samples that they took, three of them showed the presence of this drug. This is not banned by WADA. However, often new drugs that emerge in professional sport aren't initially banned because the, the cops are often a step behind the robbers, so to speak. So we don't, we don't know where this will end up, but I think it's also uh, key to note that according to this study that you researched, the understanding was that this is not a performance-enhancing drug, as uh, as many would you know could think of, like a drug like EPO, for instance, which the the object of the drug is to boost performance when on when on the bike. This would be taken to help with recovery afterwards. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So it's um, it, yeah, like you say, it wouldn't be used on the bike. It wouldn't give a boost in performance as such. But the, the research has kind of suggested that perhaps this would be used after a hard day on the bike to, you know, relax the muscles, um, help riders get to sleep. Because obviously, if you've got tense muscles and you're finding it difficult to kind of move about, then sleep is going to be harder. And so, yeah, it helps with the, the recovery process. And obviously, every day that you get better recovery, you know, the potential is you're, you're going to be better for a longer period of time because the fatigue is is much less. Um, whether or not WADA deem that gain to be 
nefarious or not it, that's up to them and the thing the thing with these new drugs you know wada and the the scientists need time to kind of establish whether or not they deem it to be a bannable drug a bit like tramadol which we had a bit of a um a scandal as such a few years ago when it was found that it was being commonly used within the peloton it's a painkiller yes it's not like a bit like this drug it's not necessarily a performance enhancer but it very much helps um and th- you know these things are a very fine line it's a there's this kind of gray whole gray area with these things what's you know, what's good performance enhancing and what's bad performance enhancing. Yes. And again, this is not banned by water. This is not an illegal drug for cyclists at this point. Uh, also, uh, it is not something that's easily attainable. You can't just walk into a, a pharmacy and request this. You need to, this needs to be acquired through a hospital. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, it may be different in in the U.S. I know that the access to, to medications is a very different process in, in the U.S. But yes. in France, uh, you need to get this uh, a special exemption um to be able to get access to this drug you can't just kind of rock up into a pharmacy and say give me 10 of these please um (laughs) that you have to go yeah through a hospital to be able to access them because they're drugs for quite serious injuries um and quite serious muscle spasms so yeah they don't want people to be kind of knocking these things back uh like sweets or sure. candy, should I say? Sure, sure. Now, do we know which riders or which team or teams were involved? So the the report was very conscious of not reporting which team or which riders were involved. Um, they they did state that it was during a three week bike race in France. There's only one of those. Yes. So it, it happened during the Tour de France, and it was done with a police presence. So. There was only one team that was publicly acknowledged to have been raided by the police during the Tour de France, which was Bahrain victorious. Now, they weren't mentioned within this report, as I say. They've kind of effectively admitted that this is connected to them, though they've not outright said that because, um, but yeah, they, they're now seeking legal advice on this uh, report mm-hmm. because they want to know how this was published while there's actually still an ongoing police investigation following that raid that happened during the Tour de France. Um, Nothing has come to them. They haven't been notified of these three positive, I say positive, these three cases where riders have um, had the presence of Tizanidine in their hair um, and they haven't been notified of any other banned or any banned substances um, by, by WADA or the French police. And so at this time, no charges have been brought against them, um, but they would appear to be the team that this report is connected to. Interesting. So what comes next? What are the next steps? Have the French police or WADA or UCI spoken on their thoughts on what this drug is and uh, any rulings on whether it should be allowed or, or disallowed? Or is that still being kept quiet at this point? Uh, well, at this time, um, the French police have not made any any comment on this. The, um, the researchers have not made any further comment. They were reaching out to them to see if they will say anything more on this. Uh, and also the UCI have been quiet on this. Um, 
the, the likelihood is that this is not going to, if it is going to be banned, it's not going to happen in the short term. As we saw with tramadol, these things take a long time. You know, the WADA and the relevant authorities have got to be sure that banning something is the right step to take. Um, and they're not going to do it um, willy-nilly, really. They're, because if, if they ban somebody because they've tested positive for a certain substance, they need to be kind of legally assured that it's going to stick. They don't want lots of cases coming up where people are kind of picking holes in in their research and in their studies. So uh, if this is going to get banned, it's going to take some time. It'll need to get put on the water watch list first before it even gets to the banned list. Whether or not it's even going to make it to the to the watch list, we're going to have to, to wait and see. But at this time, um, you know, Bahrain Victorious have not done anything wrong by the letter of the law. Whether or not people agree with with their methods, that's that's up to them. But um, Bahrain Victorious can continue as they please. Understood. That's interesting stuff. Thank you very much for your reporting, Saif, and we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much. And from France, now we will go back to America and talk Arkansas bike racing. We are now joined with Betsy Wells, just back from Bentonville. How are you, Betsy? I'm good. Um, it's a beautiful day here in Boulder, but I kind of wish I was still in Arkansas. You were in Bentonville for Big Sugar Gravel, one of Lifetime's latest races. How was the race? How was the scene? And uh, yeah, what was it like being in Bentonville where so much money and resources gone into building up the cycling culture there? Well, I'll start with the race. Um, it was great it was they so big sugar is like you said it's lifetime's newest race it was supposed to debut last year but was canceled um so there was a lot of anticipation for this race there were two distances of 50 and 100 um betsy was second in the 50 just to throw a spoiler in there nice work (laughs) betsy i know it's probably the only time in my life i will ever stand on a podium next to lauren stevens so that was um a highlight for me for sure of the weekend but the riding is awesome there um i mean we can talk a little bit about the mountain biking because it's part of the bentonville story but the gravel is phenomenal it is um you know a mile out of town you don't have to drive to get to it it's of all different qualities um in terms of chunky sharp loose um Actually, it wasn't that loose. It's pretty hard packed, but there's like lots of little rocks. And um, consequently, there was tons of bike carnage, um, especially during the 100, I heard, in the front of the men's race. Um, Lots and lots of punctures. In fact, the winner, Adam Roberge, um, after the race, he did say that his little secret was that he he was running inserts. Mm. So he felt like the weight penalty was definitely worth it. And I think it was because... Most of the other guys had like more than one puncture and Pete rolled in on a flat rear tire. So, um, lots of that, but the riding is, is great. Um, and it's really pretty, lots of trees, lots of leafy canopy, um, lots of short, sharp climbs, um, pretty technical for a gravel race, like definitely not the steamboat gravel sort of super fast road race type of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the names that were there. So in addition to the Adam Roberts and the Pete Stettners and the Ted Kings, mm-hmm. uh, there were also some names people might not be as familiar with. 
uh, on both men's and women's podiums. And then there was also, you know, people like Floyd Landis <laughs> showing up doing the race. Yep. Floyd was a bit of a surprise. I will say I had spoken to him a few weeks ago because he was planning on doing La Ruta, the mountain bike stage race in Costa Rica. So we had a chat about that. And that was unfortunately postponed um, until next year. So he showed up because kind of just like everyone had heard about how rad Bentonville was and wanted to check it out. It's funny because Floyd, I saw him standing over at the Floyds of Leadville tent at Outer Bike. He was given the 666 uh, number plate, which we all had a chuckle about there at the beginning. That was not his choice. That was just randomly that was given what, to him. That was what happens when you show up at a gravel race and ask, beg the organizers for a last minute entry. And how is Floyd doing? I understand he's uh, had a transformation recently. He's good. Yeah, he... Um, you can, I'm not going to give away too much because I'm going to publish this interview up on velonews.com. But um, yeah, for the last sort of wild dozen of years, he's been pretty undercover and not the fittest or the healthiest that he's been. Um, and COVID really gave him an opportunity to start riding again and get fit and feel better, um, not drink as much beer. So he's looking, he's looking pretty trim. And I, I, don't know how his day went. I heard he was involved in helping out Ted King, who unfortunately had a pretty bad crash and um, fractured his elbow or shattered his elbow. So not sure where Floyd finished, but um, I think he was pretty psyched to be there. Another thing I found interesting about the start and finish list in Bentonville for Big Sugar was Molly Cameron. Uh, Molly, longtime bike racer, owner of a bike shop in Oregon, uh, transgender cyclist, who has raced for many years in the men's field um, was listed in the women's field in Big Sugar. And you know, an, an added wrinkle to this was that you know, Arkansas has been a, a flashpoint uh, in recent months for transgender legislation. So, yeah, just basic question. How, how did that come to be uh, in that Molly Cameron was racing in the women's field, but then for the final podium wasn't on the women's podium. What was, what's the story there, Betsy? Well, I think the story is that there's a little nuance to this. And, um, you know, I hope people are sort of willing to hear it from all sides, I guess, or the side, which is Molly's side and, and how I understood it because, and I was kind of involved in this a little bit because Molly and I ended up finishing um, pretty close to one another. Um, and she was registered as a woman and thus um, would would have finished second in the woman's Little Sugar 50 race, um, making me third, which is great. No problem. Um, however, when the podium ceremony happened, she was part of the men's podium where she also finished second. Um, and, you know, like you said, Molly has raced with men over the years. Um, she has been racing for a very long time, long before, you know, USA Cycling or the UCI or the Olympic Committee adopted um, any rules about transgendered categories and stuff. Um, so Molly's always raced in the men's field. And, um, and that is where she wanted to finish um this weekend however she also wants to honor her identity which is that of a woman and so that was why she was registered as a woman so you know the folks at lifetime were super understanding and and you know it was sort of that easy that in the moment that was how it was explained to everyone and that was the end result i see 
Thanks. Yeah. What was the general mood among the big names and then the you know, regular everyday writers and racers who are showing up there? It's We often talk about how social media is a funny barometer of what the stress level is within the cycling community. What was the, what was the general vibe at Big Sugar Gravel? It was stoked. I mean, that's, that's the thing about being at these events on the ground and rather than just like following them through social media is that the, the stoke is still really high and it's great vibes and you, you know, pros aren't ruining gravel. They're racing it just like everyone else and hanging out and drinking beers. And, um, I, I was, I was just, it was good to be back at an event after sort of some of the drama of earlier in the summer, just to see again, you know, you've got everyone from. My friend Hunter, who's a doctor here in Boulder, he at 72, he was the oldest participant um, to a 16-year-old kid who we were racing with who would have finished fifth, I think, but he he had a puncture. So it's great. Um, everyone was happy. The pros are were a little tired, you know, just sort of like, hey, we're psyched to go into off-season, but everyone still brought it and um, and really came out to support this this event and Lifetime and and the community like it really is sort of feels like they um they do this for themselves but also for the general the scene in general um and it was cool this race too i mean a lot of the 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 big names like ben you already mentioned were there but then some different names you know the woman the woman who the the woman who won mariah wilson she is she's been around all summer and she's had some incredible results she nearly won the leadville 100 um but this is her first big win and this is a name that you're gonna hear for sure um she's a full-time specialized employee yeah yep she is we had another full-time and specialized employee on the men's podium john keller um young guy from boulder was in third and he um i think he said he slipped his chain with about 10 miles to go and that's when adam roberge took off but those two were neck and neck for a while and then in second was a dutch guy named dennis van winden who, um, again, like he's kind of gravel adjacent, but he's not, <laughs> he's not, you know, he's not pacing in terms of name notoriety. Um, so it was cool to see a couple other guys on the podium. And then on the women's side, the um, we had four girls from Tibco, um, which was really cool. And they rounded out the podium with Mariah. So Big Sugar Gravel, will you, you be back next year? Yeah, but the key is like make it a two week vacation <laughs> because gravel is just a tip of the Bentonville iceberg. Um, and that's my one regret is that I didn't stay longer to mountain bike. The more you know. Well, next time, we'll, yeah, book it out longer. Yeah. Thank you, Betsy Welch, for that. And we'll see you next time. And now we will stay in Arkansas and speak to Mr. Arkansas himself, Brendan Quirk, who has had a lot of success in the bike industry and is now the new USA Cycling Chairman of the Board. So welcome to the Vel News Podcast, Brendan. How are you? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. It's good. Good time. To, it's always a good time to talk to you, but now, now especially so. It seems you know, Arkansas, as, as many of us have been discussing, is very much on the rise in terms of cycling and all forms of cycling. Um, and you are, in many ways, of an Arkansas cycling success story yourself. So I'm hoping that today you could, you know, sort of walk us through those two trajectories: how you came to be in the position you are, what you've learned along the way, what your motivations are, what's driven you, and then similarly, like what, you know, why is Ar why Arkansas? 
And then finally, you know, tying those together with USA Cycling and and your vision with uh, what USA Cycling is and should be and can be in the future. So let's let's just rewind a bit and go back, go back to the start Uh, for folks who don't know. You know, you you co-founded Competitive Cyclists uh, back in 99, two guys in a in a shop banging it out and grew a a two man shop into the preeminent e-commerce site over 12 years Unlikely journey, for sure. <laughs> so, like to joke, it was two guys in a shoebox. Um, and you know, it's funny when we started. I was, um, you know, really in love with road racing. Uh, the guy I started it with, Craig Zedeker, was a, a really, really good mountain biker, really talented, and you know, nerded out on bike parts. And this was like a completely different era in cycling. You know, I think Lance had won his first tour, maybe, and the the impact on the bike industry, the Lance effect, as it's often called, it hadn't really happened yet. Uh, the internet hadn't really happened yet. You know, there's no such thing as a shopping cart at that point. Yes. Um, and we were, you know, we were really in love with, with cycling stuff, but we were in Little Rock, Arkansas, super small market. And so if we wanted to, to, to find kind of kindred spirits to nerd out on, you know, we had to go to the sort of the prehistoric internet, you know, the, the Usenet uh, groups and the listserv forums, just to, to find, um, other folks like us who who loved the racing, loved the the technology um, that was around at that point, and uh, it was great. And, and and what happened as we began to develop these relationships and understand the network effects of even you know prehistoric forms of social media like that was that gosh, there's a real business opportunity there. Um, there was a whole lot bigger than Little Rock. Uh, you know, our local market was, and so. When shopping, you know, shopping carts online and things like that started to be a thing, we're like, wow, this, maybe there's an opportunity there. And uh, so we we transitioned from being a, a typical IBD and uh, turned into just sort of the, the first iteration of what an online bike shop was. And it was a hard journey. The, the first several years, none of the distributors or wholesalers thought like selling bikes and bike stuff on online, you're, you're crazy, you can't do that. And we, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and we figured it out. I mean, I can really, uh, a memory that I really prize was the the first big bet that we made was um, buying 10 SRMs directly from Germany. You know, we didn't have the money to do it. Um, You know, I think I, I, we got a bank loan that was (laughs) literally mortgaged by my house to buy those 10 SRMs. I think the only place you could buy SRMs at that point now, SRMs, for folks who don't know this, you know, one of the original power meters, there's, you know, power tap was the hub-based one, but the SRM was, that was the pro option, the crank-based option. By, uh, yeah, by, very uh, cool. Uli from Germany, yes. Very cool, very German. There was a um, there was a really good retailer in Idaho that specialized in cyclocross, and for the life of me, I can't remember what the name was, but these were the only guys around who sold them. And, um, yeah, we made a bet. We bought 10 of them. And uh, boom, we sold them. And I was like, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a there there. Let's get this figured out. And so long story short, over the span of a decade, you know, we built competitive cyclists, um, you know, out of duct tape and bailing wire, but we figured it <laughs> out. And uh, yeah, we built a pretty sizable business. You kind of fast forward to 2010, 2011, when um, um, the... Um, you know, the bike boom had definitely hit at that point, and uh, we were continuing to grow like mad. We survived the 2008-2009 mortgage crisis actually pretty easily. It didn't impact us that much, which was a real shock. 
And we were at an interesting inflection point where you know, we had self-funded this whole business. We took no outside capital and we did that pretty creatively. And we just got to a point where we realized that to, 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 to continue to invest in the business at the scale we were going to need to invest in it to, to really capitalize on the opportunity, we we're going to have to find a different way to grow. And um, so we started looking at raising funding. You know, I'm a knuckleheaded, you know, I'm a kid with an English degree. My business partner, Craig, Two English degrees. I think that's, Two English degrees. As, as a word as a word guy, one thing and a, a media guy, things that I very much appreciated about the competitive cyclist website was what beautiful storytelling was involved. You know, at a time when uh, you know internet retailing and and even like back of the magazine advertising retailing was just pr- you know, pretty cut and dry. Like you yeah. know, here's one stock photo. Here's the price. You want it or not? You know, yeah, you guys yeah. did such a wonderful job of just presenting, like just you know, gorgeous photography, making these bikes, you know, showing them off for the the sexy machines that they are, and doing great storytelling. And well, I, 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 I find that very compelling. And working at different cycling websites at the time, I'm like, well, man, how, how come our sites can't look as nice as <laughs> Brendan's? Sheesh. And yeah, and then so yeah, you got you got you know the backcountry investment, and then. You know, went on to uh, you know work for Rafa as the North American president. Now Rafa's North America based there in Bentonville, Arkansas. Yep. Uh, Allied yep. Cycle Works, another Arkansas business. Uh, then went on to Runway Group, um, organization founded by the the Walton heirs, Tom and Stuart uh, Walton, mm-hmm. which has made an enormous impact on uh, American cycling in general and and uh, cycling in Arkansas in particular. Um, now you're at uh, Brompton Folding Bikes. Um, and then the you know, last little bit, uh, not a little bit, last, the most recent bit, uh, USA Cycling, you know, coming on to the board, uh, what, a little, two years ago or so? And yeah. then now just you know, yeah. October 14th, being elected as uh, chairman of the board. Yeah. Yeah, a lot going on. One trick pony, bikes, bikes, bikes all the time. So, but it's exciting, and and it, I'm excited. You know, my my whole career in cycling, um, uh, you know, it's, it's all about being inspired by um, the incredible drama of racing. You know, the incredible beauty of the destinations where these races take place, and um, you know, I've had a lot of commercial success with my own company, with other companies, and you know, I. I for me, being involved with USA Cycling is about trying to create the opportunity of discovery of racing that I, I had back in 1986 when I kind of tripped upon the Tour de France with you know, John Tesh narrating it with Greg LeMond racing back in the day. It was by pure luck that I discovered the sport that you know transformed my whole life. I think how do we create additional opportunity, a whole lot more opportunity for uh, America broadly um, to discover the sport and hopefully have a really positive you know, transformation in their lives. Um, I, I think cycling is the most amazing sport there is. Um, it's great for physical health, great for mental health. You don't have to race a bike to do it. And um, uh, USA Cycling is in a great position to help with that journey of discovery. And this is how I want to. This is how I want to pay it back. And so I'm excited to be involved. So you're saying that you know, racing is is a part, a key part of that discovery do you think i, I flew For back sure. from the the world championships in belgium with jim miller of longtime usa cycling coach and among other things and he showed me a picture on his phone he's like here's the difference and it was a picture of where he had watched the world championships he was on course but it was sitting in a bar and being belgium it was you know, packed with fans and families and the picture was a few young kids sitting there just transfixed 
by what was happening on the television. Belgian kids, they wanted to see Wout and Rimco and their boys were, yeah. uh, you know, it was like, that's, that's the difference. Um, yep. As they're making it part of the culture, you know, putting it front and center. It's not simply as a matter of bringing cyclocross worlds to Bentonville, but I think that's a great place to start, right? If, if, if uh, newbies are seeing this crazy, wonderful, weird sport, that's, totally. that's a lot easier way to get interested than if they've never seen it. Yeah, racing is the, you know, the racing at the highest level, I believe, will always be the most inspiring way to introduce people to the sport and to maintain people's interest in the sport. So racing is always a, a, an essential ingredient to the mix um, of, of growing the sport. You know, are we going to be Belgium? You know, are you going to have a bunch of kids? <laughs> yeah, T- talking probably about not. Quick, quick, quick step, the way they talk about the Dallas Cowboys, pro- probably not, but I think that there can be a much uh, deeper level of engagement than what we have now. And we're really focused on that at USA Cycling. You know, the mission is sort of twofold. It's build the grassroots. Yep. Uh, at the same time, it's rainbow jerseys and Olympic medals. And we need to we need to do great on both fronts. And I really do believe in that mission. And I do believe they're interlinked. And I'm excited to be part of it. And now how much, just broadly, how much of USA Cycling's money and effort is spent on chasing medals like you know i've got track world's uh coverage going here uh where you know jennifer valente continues to notch up medals uh, for sure she's she's crushing it uh Ashley yeah and lambie et cetera, et cetera. You know, how much is the focus on that uh versus versus the grassroots yeah so historically it skewed very hard to the elite um and it was um you know it was all about how do you maximize it's, it's almost like an a a, a like a, a publicly traded business, you know, it's like, how do you optimize for that quarter's results? I think that USA Cycling um, w- w- was similar in the sense of how do we maximize our, um, you know, World Cup, World Championship or, or uh, Olympic results in that year or a or, you know, couple of years. Um, I, I think in terms of more of the long term view, which is, um, you know, how do we how do we build out a fully fledged funnel even at the bottom of the funnel, bringing new people into the sport. I don't think my, my impression, I wasn't around for it, but my impression as someone who got their first USCF license in 1986, my impression is that the grassroots, it was not like a, a huge priority. Um, historically, I think in terms of the amount of discussion that goes on, on a coming up in terms of developing programs and really putting key performance indicators in place for the business to say, Hey, how do we, how do we measure how we are doing in terms of developing the grassroots? The organization is, is making huge step for huge steps forward. Um, you know, Rob DiMartini has done an amazing job. Um, this is the beauty of his, you know, he was CEO of new balance for 12 years and he fully understands how the, the growth of, uh, let's call it, grassroots running has had a positive impact on what USA track and field has been able to achieve. Um, you know, I think how much of that model is applicable to cycling. I think Rob has really challenged the organization to figure that out. And I have a lot of confidence in him. And I think that you've got some great programs with let's ride and some, and some other similar programs where we're getting deeper into communities, um, to, to begin to build that grassroots. There's a lot more for us to do though. I think we're just scratching the surface and, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful we're going to make greater steps forward um, much sooner than later. Rob Martini is the CEO of USA Cycling. You are the chairman of the board of USA Cycling. How do those two roles uh, interact? What, you know, what, 
uh, he's charged with leading the organization. What is the chairman of the board tasked with doing? You know, prior to yourself, it was Bob Stapleton, uh, who many racing fans know from his involvement in cycling with the high road team, which took over from T-Mobile. Uh, so he had a he came out. He was a businessman before that uh, in the telecommunications industry, but then was working on the on the racing side. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what what does the chairman of the board at USA Cycling do? My uh, my number one role is to communicate with the board. You know, the board needs to understand what um, the critical issues are in the organizations and in the organization, and needs to have a big impact on the direction of the organization. Uh, your board has 11 people. Uh, one of the things that's mandated by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee is that uh, 33% of the board needs to be composed of what's called eligible athletes. And those are athletes that have raced for Team USA either in the Olympics, in World Championships, or in a Pan American Games in the last 10 years. And the, you know, the USOPC is really keen to make sure that the national governing bodies of the Olympic movement are very, you know, it's very athletics focused. And I think that's the right thing to do. And so, um, you know, engaging with those athletes is, is critically important. Um, so keep it communicate, you know, interacting with the board, communicating with the board is my number one job. You know, technically, the chairman of the board is the CEO's boss. Um, you know, I've, I've served as CEOs in multiple um uh, organizations, and I feel like I have a pretty good understanding how that CEO chairman dynamic works. I don't behave like a boss. I really look at it as I, I want to be sort of the, the number one thought partner for the CEO. But this is Rob's business to run, and I think he's doing a really good job of it. Uh, but I, I want to be there to challenge him appropriately and um, to be there for him to bounce ideas off of, but also to give him critical feedback on areas where, you know, if there's not enough focus, we, you know, we need to focus here more and, and or focus there less. And uh, he's he's been a great guy to interact with in the couple of years that I've been around, first as a board member, but now in my you know, early innings as chairman. And I've got a lot of confidence in the direction that we're going, both in terms of grassroots, but also I think the glide path to the Paris 20, you know, 2024 Olympics in Paris and then the 2028 Olympics in L.A. And those L.A. games are a real priority for us, having ga games in the, in the U.S., in such a monumental media market, this is really important for all, uh, you know, all all uh, disciplines in the Olympic movement. And you're going to see a lot of emphasis and a lot of talk around the LA 2028 Games. Really, you know, from here and starting now until 2028. So I'm really excited about that. So Olympic medals always a, a key priority for USA for sure. Cycling. Tell me about sure. other goals of where you would like to see USA Cycling outside of the mix. So fast forward to 2028. In addition to seeing Americans on the top of the podium and, and all the, the cycling events, where would you like to see USA Cycling? I mean, if I could write the headline, here's the headline I would like to write. I would like to say in 2028, you know, in the, in the, you know, between Tokyo and L.A., what USA Cycling did is that they brought together um, some key initiatives that all layered on top of each other for the benefit um, of, of, you know, of both grassroots and elite. I think what I'd like to see is our um, you know, real focus we're putting in diversity, um, how we layer in grassroots and diversity together. Um, I want to say that you know, USA Cycling was a leading organization in diversifying the, the, you know, the grassroots efforts and through that development built a much bigger pool of athletes that go into the pipeline. And one of the things that drop, you know, will drive, let's, let's again, thinking about a theoretical headline, 
one of the key factors that drove breakthrough success, the LA 2028 games for uh, Team USA, were the, the big diversity-led efforts bringing cycling to, to new populations. And from that, we had this just, just the, the, right, it's just all about math. It's a much bigger pool of athletes that we could pull from. And that's a, you know, it's, let's talk about, you know, uh, tra the track sprint program, the BMX race program. Um, you know, we, we really start to drive all new success because we have so much bigger of a pool of athletes because we've introduced the sport to all sorts of new populations that historically USA Cycling, um, you know, just, just didn't, didn't put a focus on. And so I'm excited about that. You know, how do we get deep into, um, you know, downtown Los Angeles? How do we get deep into Miami? How do we get deep into New York City, deal with these big population centers, lots of kids, tons of great athletes were participating in all sorts of different sports and how do we pull them over into cycling that's going to be really exciting and I'm, I, I think we're going to get there yeah absolutely yeah Los Angeles cycling super exciting uh, the Legion of Los Angeles is putting on a $100,000 criterium up in Sacramento yeah. not, you know not LA but uh, California lots of cool things going on in cycling right now but yeah. Uh, yeah let's let's talk Arkansas so much going sure. on there and uh, you know why just you know simple question I feel I know the answer, but why? Why Arkansas for you and uh, for the Waltons and you know for this whole spate of races from you know multiple U.S. Pro Cups on the mountain bike side, USA or UCI, I'm sorry, UCI Cyclocross World Cup, uh, multiple gravel races, and then the recently announced title sponsor Walmart of the uh, Cyclocross World Championships. So why Arkansas for you, and and why and explain the. Uh, you know, your connection with the Waltons, how that got started and what that means for, for USA Cycling. Well, why Arkansas for me, it's because of my home. I moved here as a, you know, an 11-year-old back in 1982. Like many folks, it's a very common journey. If you're not born in Arkansas, you end up here from Texas. Um, I, was, I was actually born in New York City, and my father's job took us from New York City to Dallas. Lived in Dallas for five years, and uh, you know, if you're an Arkansas company that wants to recruit really talented people, then the number one place you pull from is Texas. Um, Texan, te Texas loves Arkansas. Arkansas is incredibly beautiful. Um, it's a hard place to get people to visit for the first time, but then when they do, they're just you know they're just shocked at how beautiful it is here. And it's beautiful in terms of the mountains, beautiful in terms of the rivers, beautiful in terms of just the open spaces. Uh, and that all really plays into cycling. I'm the road cycling here. This is how I came up as a road cyclist. There's so much good road cycling here. It's just crazy. And it's not just great because it's the biggest, the biggest mountain range between the Appalachians and the Rockies is in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. You get the Washita Mountains going into the Ozark Mountains. Some serious climbing there. So you have great mountains. You've got low population, low population density, but a pretty good network of, of paved roads here. And the, the riding here is, is killer. I and mean, that's why Joe, the Joe Martin stage race has been around for so long. That's why, you know, the, you had the, the, the tour of Arkansas back in the day where, I mean, there was some killer, killer racing that led up to um, you know, back when the U.S. Pro Championship, uh, U.S. Pro Road Championship is always in Philly. Um, you know, there was there were big races here in Arkansas. The pros could get in loads of climbing leading into Philly week. And it was just the perfect lead up for that. Um, and there's just a tradition of good road racing here. Uh, gravel, same deal. Um, you, know, you look at Benton County, where Bentonville is. Benton County, Arkansas has 1,800 miles of roads in it. 900 miles of those roads are gravel. Uh, so loads of climbing, loads of climbing um, 
um, empty roads, friendly people, friendly drivers. It makes it from a road and gravel standpoint, it's great. Now, in terms of why Arkansas, in terms of mountain biking, it's, it's you know, there are loads of open spaces, um, yeah, um, you know, and from a Wal- the Walton's perspective, um, you know, kind of taking us in a different direction, it's, it's, a, it's a strategic decision for them. I mean, they want to drive economic benefit and quality of life to Northwest Arkansas for very obvious reason. You know, they are transforming the, the Walmart is you know, the largest retailer in the world by a country mile. Yes. And they are, they are in a, um, you know, they're in a serious fight with, with Amazon. This is my opinion. This is not something they've said. This is just kind of my view of things, but yeah, the, the, the most interesting corporate fight, I think on the whole world right now is Walmart and Amazon going toe to toe. Amazon's trying to diversify and become a retail company, a physical retail company. Walmart has spent the last you know decade plus trying to transform into a technology company. And when you get into a competition for high level talent, especially technology talent, you go back to you know twenty years ago, and if you're a hotshot software engineer and you get a offer from Amazon and you get to move to downtown Seattle, or you get an offer from Walmart and you get to move to early nineties Bentonville, Arkansas, pretty easy decision to make <laughs> as to where you want to go as a young kid. And so I think that there, there was an understanding that there's an amazing business in Walmart um, that is here, but to attract the talent that you need, there needs to be a quality of life in the region that people are going to get excited about. And one of the real pillars of these initiatives is quality of life built on outdoor recreation and especially built on mountain biking. Um, and it's, it wasn't this cold, calculated decision. Um, you know, Tom Walton, Stuart Walton both went to college out west. They both fell in love with mountain biking when they were out west. You know, Stuart went to school out at CU Boulder. Tom went to school out at NAU out in Flagstaff. And that's when they discovered mountain biking. They came home to Bentonville and they're like, man, we've got the terrain. Let's, let's build some trails. And so they, you know, Tom literally went out there with one other guy who ended up being a co-founder of Progressive Trail Design, which is now one of the preeminent trail building organizations in America. And they started scratching out some, some trail, the first three or four miles of the slaughter pen trails that many, many people have ridden now. And um, it was a, 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 a kind of a crawl, walk, run approach where they realized as, as they built trails you know, if you build it, they will come. And that is definitely what's happened. Yeah. And what's happened starting in 2006 or 2007 when those trails started being built to now, there's 400 miles of single track in the area around Bentonville. And it's 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 pretty sweet purpose-built single track. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, And you have more than $70 million invested in cycling infrastructure is enormous anywhere in particular. In particular yeah. There. And it, and it, from the outside, I understand that, you know, some of your first interactions with the Waltons from a business standpoint were when you were at Rafa as uh, president of North America, uh, speaking of Seattle versus Bentonville, you know, Rafa North America was started in Portland has since moved to Bentonville as the Walton brothers through their investment group have invested in Rafa. They've also invested in Allied. And, you know, I found that fascinating from the, from the outside watching, you know, those just cyclist perception of those two brands. This is, you know, broadly stereotyping here, but Rafa is a high-end brand. Uh, Walmart, by definition, is a very approachable brand, and there was a lot of mm-hmm. dismissive uh, grumblings <laughs> about that initial investment, um, sort of downplaying, oh, yeah, Walmart, and now Rafa is a Walmart brand. Uh, you know, Maybe some insight and lessons you've learned there could carry forwards now that the Cyclocross World Championship is also branded Walmart. Like, you know, how you see 
those t- those two cultures interacting is it two cultures is that just uh, uh, the you know humans bad instincts of trying to divide things where there is no division yeah. the, the Walmart yeah. the Walton <laughs> brothers love cycling and why not put money into it but yeah what was I would just let's talk about Rafa first in fact you know sure you know what what did you, what was your attraction to that company what what was your your vision there and what did you learn in particular with with the Walton brothers coming in, in with their yeah. investment yeah so the the uh, you know i knew rafa from the very get-go back in i think it was 2004 2005 um, when simon Matram, the founder of rafa and ceo the first time rafa clothing was physically shown in the united states was back in that rough era 2004 2005 it was an event in new york city I mean, it was like a trunk show in a in a media agency. There's a guy named Tom Ennis, who's a really interesting guy in New York City. He's been involved in a, a lot of cool things. He was part of the group that brought American, invented American Idol, that invented the Spice Girls. Um, you know, just crazy media career and a really great guy. But he's also a lifelong cyclist. He spent a lot of time going back and forth between New York and London uh, for that job. And so he met Simon through that. When Simon's like, hey, I want to do kind of the first, you know, the debut, physical debut of Rafa clothing in the U.S., um, um, Tom said, hey, we'll do it in my office. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, we'll cater it in, get a bar, get food, all that. And Tom was also very friendly with me. I, and you know, at that point, competitive cyclists, we had some pretty good momentum, good customer base in New York City. So Tom introduced um, Simon to me. And um, this was Simon's event, but uh, he asked if I could um, invite my New York City VIPs. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm also going to invite myself. And so <laughs> that's where I met Simon the first time. And we quickly established a friendship, but also a business relationship. And at Competitive, we became a very big wholesale account of Rafa. And really, I think, I like to think we helped build the brand's profile in the U.S., um, and it was, I think, a success economically for both competitive and Rafa, but it was also it became a really meaningful personal relationship for Simon and me. So when I left, um, fast forward many years, I left backcountry. Um, I had a non-compete that I where I had to sit on the sidelines for a year. And then Simon got in touch with me. He said, "Hey, look, you know, we we feel like we really have a tiger by the tail in in Rafa." Um, we feel like we're building something that's really valuable. It's valuable on a global basis, um, but you know, our, our U.S. business is not what it needs to be. The U.S. is the largest consumer cycling market in the world, and we need to hypercharge the growth there, and we want to get it done in the next two or three years. He asked if I'd be interested in joining the company to, to lead that effort. And so um, I was like, heck yeah, you know, where do I sign? It's, at that point, I thought it was the coolest brand in all of cycling. Uh-huh. So join the company, and um, um, it's interesting because you would think, hey, to, to drive the U.S. business, you would spend a lot of time driving U.S. initiatives. I think what I learned when I first got under the hood is that there were some kind of systemic or kind of global uh, areas for improvement in the business that would directly drive the U.S. business. A lot of it had to do with technology. And so what ended up happening over the next two and a half years, I spent a lot more time in London than I did in the U.S., which Mm. none of us expected, but that's kind of what happened. In 30 months, I flew to London 24 times. And uh, this is not like an easy New York to London flight. This is from, yeah, this is from Little Rock. So it's Little Rock to Dallas or Little Rock to Chicago. And holy moly, it was was tough. But it was worth it because I love the brand and I love the mission. 
and we did it. We 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 kicked ass in the U.S. We built out a bunch more, you know, several more retail stores. We really, I think, grew our capabilities in terms of driving digital traffic, and it was a real success. And um, we we kind of hit our marks in terms of growing that U.S. business. So we got to a point where um, you know Simon um, made the decision he wanted to sell the company. He thought the time was right. And so got a fancy banker as you do and really ran a grown-up process that I'd never been exposed to a process like this before. And the, the, the quick story of that is um, you had uh, the, this process, you had a lot of people who were interested. That process ran down to five, let's call it finalists, um, to, to bid on the company. And it was fancy, you know, it was crazy private equity companies, mammoth, very intimidating to me, intimidating companies. Like one was London, maybe one was in Milan, one was based in Amsterdam, one was based in Paris, and then one was based in Bentonville, Arkansas, which Uh was (laughs) RZC Investments. And and so the first time I ever met Stuart Walton was actually in a boardroom in London. And it's uh, very unlikely because we're both from Arkansas, we're both crazy for cycling, but I was in Little Rock, which is my home. He's based in Bentonville, which is about 200 miles away. And, and we really hit it off as, when we met each other. And then fast forward, uh, Simon and the board made the decision that, that RZC was the, the right company to, to sell to. And um, uh, it's it got the deal done. Um, because of all the traveling that I was doing, I immediately let, let Simon know once the deal was done. It's like, I'm out of here. I can't. I never want to be on an airplane again. And um, my job here is done. And so I stuck around for a few more months and um, ended up spending more time with the Walton brothers. They explained to me what they were trying to build in Northwest Arkansas. Cycling, they learned I was leaving the company. And they asked if I would be interested in joining the runway group to help them uh, develop and um, kind of deploy their cycling strategy. Yes, and you, you went on to be the cycling program director there for a number of years. But let's just talk on Allied briefly. It's one more Arkansas company yeah. where you came on as interim CEO. It's you know Allied for for listeners who don't know is a Arkansas based carbon fiber bike company, and it's it's very unique in this day and age that bikes are being made in the U.S. Uh, yeah. You know, the majority of bikes are being very well made in Asia. Um, at scale, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there are a few, you know, boutique builders here in the U.S., you know, largely metal fabricators. Um, so Allied was kind of existing in this this middle ground, which seems to be a bold bold move. So yeah, why? Aside from the fact that uh, Tony Carklin's former Orbea USA is also an Arkansas gentleman, why why Arkansas or why you know why the U.S. is a place to, to build bikes and and why in Arkansas and what was your involvement there? You know, the, the notion of why in the U.S., that's a good question. I mean, I think the operative kind of hypothesis here is that if the entire organization is under one roof, all the way from, you know, it's the, the, the people designing the bikes that are going to be, you know, invented, you know, commercialized and brought to market two years from now, if you have the engineers and then you actually have the, the people who are doing layup you know, the people who are really, you know, they're physically manufacturing the bikes, you have customer service, you have marketing, if you have all of that under one roof, 
um, you do a couple things. First of all, um, you can just bring stuff to market a lot faster. Second of all, um, from a quality control standpoint, you just have a you just have a lot more command of the process. You know, there is no, uh, you know, there are no time zones to deal with. There are no language barriers to deal with. There's no kind of crazy travel you have to deal with when it comes to Asian manufacturing. And I think also, I mean, not to not to just open up a whole can of worms, but there's something to um, the reality of what you know, Asian manufacturing, the realities of Asian manufacturing, that's pretty brutal, that it's like, okay, is there a better way forward where you can really give people a living wage and a meaningful job? And can you build superior products and sell them at a price that are not, it's not insanely over, you know, out of kilter with what the rest of the market is? Is there both a, um, you, can you build a better product that's great for the rider, but are you also doing something that's just, you know, it's, to me, there was always a little bit of kind of an ethical thing there. You know, can you pay people a, a living wage and give them meaningful work? Um, is, is, isn't that isn't that cool? Yeah. And I thought, you know, not not being judgy, it's it's less about what they're doing in Asia. It's just more about what are we doing here sure. that's really creating value, personal and professional value for people who are involved in the process. Um, and I, I think Allied has done a really great job with that. Ally was very early to the game with gravel too, and so what I think what what Allied had or and continues to have is superior bikes, um, but they also got early mover advantage by having you know, Colin Strickland and Amity Rockwell both with the, when they won the 2019 what was on, then called the on, Dirty Conza. On Able, it was just a yeah on, on Allied Able. It was just like the perfect storm. And um, it just got, I, I think it got everybody excited of, hey, we, we've got a real opportunity here. Um, that said, there was, there was definitely some, um, you know, some work that needed to be done to help the business mature and, and capitalize on the opportunity. Um, you know, Tom and Stuart were excited to, to support this Arkansas-based company. And um, they were excited about the opportunity, put some, some added capital into it. And what they wanted was someone that they had worked with, that they had a you know, track record with to get involved. And, and, you know, let's let's see how fast, how hard we can we can develop this company. So that's why I got involved. And it was a great opportunity. I will tell you, manufacturing is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been involved in a manufacturing company, and it was one of the steepest learning curves I've ever encountered in my professional career. Mm, interesting. But they're still plugging away, still making great bikes. They are. They are. Great opportunity in front of them as gravel continues to, to grow like it is. Yeah, I enjoyed riding the riding and racing the Able myself. And I, there is something, yeah. I don't know if sentimental is the right word, there is something cool about riding an American-made bike. And, yeah, you know. I agree. So, run, Runway Group, what, what exactly does a cycling program director do? And uh, is it entirely walmart funded or is the state of arkansas also putting money in because there's a, a whole lot of money getting poured into trails and infrastructure and and brands and yeah so on the back up so it's not walmart funded none of this is walmart funded this is um really very little of what we do has anything to do with walmart now the walton family is the majority um are the majority shareholders of walmart but yes you know the the the, the work at the runway group and all the kind of the mountain bike uh, mountain bike stuff and other things sorry, you know, so yes the Wal other walton family foundation Wal sorry. walton family yes well it's walton family because some of it is right you take a step back 
There's some Walton family investment that is for-profit, such as their investments in Rotha or their investments in Allied. Then they do things through the Walton Family Foundation, which are philanthropic, such as, um, you know, investing in, um, you know, philanthropic investments in trails or supporting active transportation infrastructure initiatives or things like that. So it's it, not to get wonky, but it's I just want to make sure people understand it's not Walmart. That's that's a good clarification and a needed one because, you know, as I said, many people, sometimes myself included, will just look at a headline and yep. know nothing and make lots of yeah. uh, conclusions and judgments. <laughs> so thank yeah, you for no, that that's totally cool. That's totally cool. So so in answer to your question, kind of the the the, the what my charge was was this: is like we we knew that we felt the opportunity in front of us is that um, Bentonville as a city has the opportunity to be the way we talk about it internally kind of our rallying cry it's we have the opportunity to be america's first ski town for mountain bikes we feel like we can develop an entire experience that is amazing for local residents that's amazing for tourism um that's all about delivering the most incredible mountain bike experience possible now that that now extends into gravel as well we think about it more it's like off-road generally um, our, the, 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 what we have now in terms of trails and, and um, you know, gravel, we, we, you know, we, we feel like we are, um, our destiny is to be a global destination for that kind of riding. Now, I lived in Park City for four years when I worked at Backcountry. I have a pretty good sixth sense of what you know, the upsides and the downsides are of Ski Town. And we're trying, to, we're trying to manage through that. We're trying to make it more accessible we're trying to make it so the programming is you can really it's a it broadly reaches the entire community. You know, you don't have to ride an eight thousand dollar Able or a eight thousand dollar you know Epic Evo to enjoy uh, what it is we're trying to build. How do we create access and programs so the whole community can benefit from this? Uh, is is critically important to us. You know, how do we think about um, you know? Anyways, I'll just I'll just kind of leave it at that. That's kind of the the rallying cry. Now the way that we're trying to make that come to life and what my charge was is okay. You've got to triangulate, I would say, for-profit investments because, you know, if, if you unleash entrepreneurs in the community, you're going to build amazing experiences in that city. So how do we support entrepreneurs and private investment? How do we use philanthropic funding uh, to drive nonprofits that are doing amazing things to champion cycling? And then how do we engage with, with governments, whether it's the, the city uh, whether it's the state, whether it's the federal government, how do we engage with government to kind of get to get regulation out, out of the way that obstructs our vision to become um, um, this 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 kind of America's first ski town for mountain biking model? But also, how do we support regulation? You know, it's like Idaho stop bills and things like that. Um, you know, recreational use statutes, so we can go out and work with private landowners who can give us easements to run trails through, and those landowners can't get sued for that. These are things that really allow the, the network that we've built come to come to life. It's a triangulating for-profit investment, philanthropic, um, your philanthropy, and um, a public policy to, to build the best community possible for cycling and, and cyclists. And I don't know if the UCI is the absolute judge of what makes a good bike town, but you're talking about Park City being a, an epic ski town. And the UCI uh, president, David Lapartier, just three weeks ago, dubbed Fayetteville, Arkansas, a UCI 
Bike City. So con- congrats on that. I don't even know yeah. what that means exactly, but I just saw that come through the news and I thought, huh, that's uh, surprising and, and testament to the work that's being done there. It's a lot of investment, not just in I would call mountain biking and that kind of you know, performance cycling or recreational cycling, but there are also been a lot of investments in terms of active transportation infrastructure. And we're, you know, we want to be as much as we can at the tip of the spear for that. And then, you know, engage with other communities across America about lessons learned and um, you help them with their journeys, um, both in terms of building trails, but also in terms of building active transportation infrastructure. Both of them are equally important. And when I see that, that you know, the kind of the label that the UCI gave us, I saw it as a validation of both of those efforts. Absolutely. Because as you said, bike racing is fantastic. It's something that you and I have followed for years. That's what we do at Val News is cover bike racing. But the fundamental situation is if people, if everyday people don't feel safe getting on their bike in their hometown, the totally. sport's not going anywhere. So I think that's Correct. vital work. The Walton brothers are notoriously uh, media shy, um, which is a funny thing because you know they've driven so much uh, great work in cycling, um, but they decline typically, not always, but typically to speak to anyone in cycling. Why is that? Is that just because of how politics and their broader business uh, can intersect or, or why the reticence to, to speak with media? Uh, you know, I don't have a, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. I think the best answer I have is that uh, it's, uh, it's a, media is a tough environment in this day and age and uh, not much upside to being in the media. So, you know, that, that may be some of it. I mean, I, I feel like they, they actually engage more than they get credit for. Their preference is to engage in a one-on-one level. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, they come to town, you know, they're like, they hear from somebody, hey, we're doing a gravel ride tomorrow at 9 a.m. Small groups are going, come join us. And then next thing you know, you're, you're riding along with one of the two of them. And I think that's where um, their impact is so powerful because I think that's on that one-on-one basis, you get to see their, their love of Northwest Arkansas is so genuine and their love of cycling is so genuine. And it's, it's, you know, it's really powerful. Media is a tough environment. I, I'm not really involved in that kind of those, those conversations and that strategy about what media do you talk to or, or don't you talk to. But what I can tell you, if you're fortunate enough to, to go out and ride with them in person, um, they're, they're super normal and um, they love bikes as much as you and I do. And that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's, we're definitely reaping the benefit of uh, a lot of their, their work and investment. And so just, you just let them know that they're welcome anytime here on the, the Villa News Podcast if they want to come in that's and a deal. talk bikes. That's a deal. Right. <laughs> that's a so, deal. you know, my brother, like many of us, there's, we've got connections to Arkansas. My brother and his family there in Fayetteville. So the next time I'm visiting my brother, what is the, the number one place I should go ride in the, the Fayetteville area? Well, in Fayetteville, it's the it's it's Centennial Park where the Cross World Championships are going to be. I mean, that's it's you know what you're going to have there. There's sort of two things, well, a few two two and a half things going on. One is the course that the world the World Cup that was just held on last week, and that the World Championships will be on in January. That that cyclocross course is permanent. It's not like we put up a bunch of stuff and we're going to take it down after the World Championships. That create the 39 stairs and the crazy descent on the far side. A lot of the other, you know, all the other structures that are there, kind of the Stonehenge feature, all that's permanent. And so 
Um, what, what the thesis is here is that you've got a permanent uh, world-class caliber cyclocross course. Many of the attributes can also be repurposed for um, a World Cup cross-country style course. So our, you know, the, 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 our intention with Centennial is that we want to host national class and international class cyclocross races from here to eternity. We want to get on the UCI World Cup cross-country rota um, permanently. But, the, but we also, you know, it's, it's local racing. It's you know, USA Cycling National Championships. But what this park also does, and this is what's genius, is that it's not just there for elite level racing, but it actually it creates the final link in a mountain bike traverse around the city of Fayetteville. So if you're at your brother's house or if you're on the campus of the University of Arkansas, you can hop on your mountain bike. You can go through a series of trail networks and on a mountain bike ride your entire way around Fayetteville, never ride on the same trail twice. And, and that Centennial Mountain piece was the, the critical component. So this is, this is a facility that is there for, um, you know, the, the world-class racers, but it's also there for the local population of Northwest Arkansas to enjoy. There are, there, I think it's 15 miles, 13 miles of single track up on Centennial. And so there's a whole lot of mountain biking up there, um, and it's a blast. So that's my recommendation of where to, where to steer you. All right. That, that sounds great. I will file that away and look forward to doing that. Maybe I could be riding there with you. Let's do it. Brendan Quirk, I thank you for your tips. I thank you for your time. And I thank you for all your work in uh, making cycling cool in America. I appreciate it. And I just, I think I'll give a shout out to what you guys are doing at Bella News. Uh, I'm so impressed um, in terms of the developments that Pocket is doing there. And there's just been a... Um, uh, resurrection is a weird word. The Velo News has definitely become what it was for so long, which is my go-to place for for news and for just cool editorial as well. So big props to you guys. You guys are headed in the right direction. Hey, I appreciate you saying that. Well, folks, that does it for us this week. Uh, I am Ben Delaney. That was Brendan Quirk, and we thank you for listening to the Velo News Podcast. <laughs>